Good morning. This is Hacker Mike coming at you from the heart of New Jersey. It's 4.30 in the morning on a Saturday. It's time for my epic Saturday walk. And you are welcome to join me. It's drizzling. So I had to go find a little light rain jacket. Because for some reason... I don't like little drops of water on my face. It upsets my ape nature for some reason. And I was thinking about the harmony between our different parts, our different reactions, and how really uh, <clears throat> the whole idea that we are just one thing one definition I think that's um, something to be questioned so what we've been learning recently in our podcast is that all of these things that you want to find locations for all these concepts you want to say oh well that's my ape brain over there that's my chicken brain over there well that turns out to be wrong That's my spirit, that's my mind, that's my consciousness, all of those things. So, you might have just some rough idea, but every idea that you have about where one part of the mind is located, just think, that's a hypothesis. That's just some idea. Um... That's like a kid pointing to the map and saying, oh, I think that's where we are, right? We get a lot to learn. We ain't no experts on this topic. And we really have no knowledge on it. We're just beginning to gain some knowledge. <clears throat> so let's um, take a, back, a step back from that. And we also learned to take a step back from truth. Like, oh, that's true. That's absolutely true. Well, take a step back from that. Say, it's going to be super hard to find the absolute truth. And think, oh, I'm confident in this. Well, let's take a step back from being totally confident in something. Okay? Let's look at the junk pile of our knowledge. Everything that we've done and collected so far as a big pile of half-truths and little mechanisms and little things that we've kind of pieced together, but we really don't know what is absolutely true. We have no real absolute confidence in any of it. And I'm not saying to go out and go postal. What I'm saying is Let's uh, reduce the confidence level just a little bit. Now, that's not going to get you published on the front page because the media loves the oversimplification, the um, extreme confidence in one side or the other.
because what people really like, and you got to think of actually the Romans, is a good fight. See the gladiators spill blood for their entertainment. That's what we really enjoy. So think about that, guys, and we're going to get into some clips soon. Today we're going to listen to this new podcast that I found. It's called The Clear and Present Danger, History of Free Speech. And we're going to listen to episode 40, The Age of Human Rights, Tragedy and Triumph. And I'm not going to play all the clips. I'm not going to play you the whole show, but I'm going to extract out a couple of minutes that I think are worthwhile discussing. So, uh, yeah, join me on my walk today. I'll start this podcast live. I will post it on the interwebs. You can call in. Or if you're awake, you can uh, join me on the anchor.fm has a call-in function. So you can join me on chat, on SMS. Again, I'll give you the number. 609-429-4144. That's USA, country code 1, 609-429-4144. This is training of random... So send me a text, send me a voicemail, um, <clears throat> install the Anchor app, anchor.fm app, and follow me on anchor.fm, and uh, join the convo. I want to thank you for that convo. All right, let's go. Let's hit this. Now, where is my... Anchor. So, in this next clip, or first clip for the day, it's a little bit long, but it talks about a uh, Saudi Arabian or Iranian activist who was uh, tortured for his blog. And he, the guy goes on and talks about the International Declaration of Human Rights, how Saudi Arabia, Islamic countries, and communist countries refused to sign it, and how Islam is using, well, Islamic theocratic states are using um, <clears throat> the communist ideas of um, refusal of free speech to uh, implement their own ideas, and then they talk about how we can see this also happening in Europe. Well, we could also see it happening in Turkey. And <clears throat> I think we have to really um, make a stand for free speech. That the individual human rights do trump. The I'm going to wait for these cars to pass. That the individual human rights do trump the um, rights of the state in that respect. And um, I was reading some other things um, where basically communism does not see the rights of the individual to be important because they are trumped by that of the collective. So anything that goes against 
the commune, the collective is bad. So individual perspectives are also bad. And um, you're expected to sacrifice yourself for the good of the group. Now this is especially true in homogenous genetic groups, uh, let's say family or bees. Now bees are expected to sacrifice themselves for the hive because they are all identical clones of each other. There is no genetic diversity in the bees, so one bee will willingly sacrifice itself for its hive mates because they are all the same. Now this is according to the theory of the selfish gene by Richard Dawkins that you'll see in this show all the time where he's basically stating that the genes themselves are the ones the masters in control. Well, now we see the mutation of the gene, we see the meme where the religion or the communism or whatever ism comes up sees itself as the thing that needs to be replicated and the individuals are there just to sacrifice themselves to carry this thing forward. <clears throat> so that's my take on it. And uh, we will uh, continue, we'll start this thing with this clip. So here we go. You will find hundreds of fatwas that accused him of being an infidel just because he had the courage to discuss some sacred topic. He also denounced Islamist chauvinism, hailed secularism, and argued that states which are based on religion confine their people in the circle of faith and fear. Raif Badawi's case illustrates the age-old tensions between free speech and the ideological or religiously motivated censorship of authoritarian states that we have detailed throughout this podcast. As such, Badao's fate would have been familiar to the Soviet refusenik and human rights activist Nathan Sharansky and many other dissidents in the Soviet bloc, who also faced long prison sentences and inhuman treatment during the Cold War. And although the communist states believed in the historical necessity of their materialist ideology rather than the revealed word of God, both theocratic and communist states proclaimed to be in possession of the truth. Consequently, they punish those who engage in religious or ideological heresy, leaving little room for the idea of human rights. After all, human rights claim to supersede any moral, religious or ideological system by providing every human being the fundamental right to think and express themselves according to the dictates of their conscience, rather than the tenets of any creed or ideology. So it's no surprise that in 1948, Saudi Arabia and six communist states were among the eight countries that did not vote in favor of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a landmark achievement in the history of human rights. But as we shall see, enforcing a state monopoly on truth is difficult to justify and systematically enforce in a world where the idea of universal human rights has helped shape international norm that must, at the very least, be paid a certain amount of lip service in order to retain respectability. Accordingly, both communist and Islamic states developed cautious strategies to engage with the growing human rights system in order to seek legitimacy without undermining their grip on power and the public sphere. 
One key strategy was to pull the teeth from the protection of free speech by including simultaneous obligations to prohibit the broadly defined concept of incitement to hatred, later infused with defamation of religions. As we shall see, this strategy initially succeeded for the communist states. But in the long run, these exceptions were not enough to blunt the emancipatory and empowering idea of free expression. The very human rights language which the communist states had sought to contain in an awkward embrace ultimately escaped their grasp and ended up eroding the communist stranglehold on power. But the repressive legacy of communism had a long half-life, even after the ideology itself had been dumped on the ash heap of history at the end of the Cold War. The countries in the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC, sought to exploit the very loopholes that the communist states had introduced for their own purposes. Instead of protecting an atheistic and materialist ideology, the OIC advanced an interpretation where restrictions on free speech protected theistic and metaphysical Islamic doctrines from criticism and satire. And while a concerted global effort by democracies successfully beat back the OIC offensive at the UN, this conflict is still ongoing. In fact, the democracies and human rights system of Western Europe have internalized and expanded limitations on free speech, which once were deemed dangerous. And while these limits have not resulted in restrictions remotely comparable to the censorship of the Soviet bloc or the countries of the OIC, laws against hate speech and offense have contributed to a significant decline in the respect of free expression and media freedom in Western Europe over the past decade. This raises the question of just how robust the future of free speech and the culture on which it depends really is. So now we're going to go back to yesterday's talk about the narrative. And really, podcasts are narratives, right? Narration, and talking. We're going over topics. We are um, giving you a format of a voice in your ear or voices in your ear that you can listen to while driving or relaxing or even working. Some stuff can be just like background um, music. Other things can be so challenging that you have to really stop everything you're doing and listen to it. <clears throat> I hope we can find a happy medium between that. Um, I don't intend this to be entertaining, really, but we still want to, you know, we don't want to overstress our listener. Um, yeah, so the Greeks had their poems yesterday we talked about that they're epic poems that were carried on but we'll see these epic poems being repeated over and over again in India the most ancient culture that's still alive I think it's 10,000 years old unbroken where they have these big fire dances and they do these singing and chanting with these strange sounds they think that some of them are like it's not even a language it could be like animal sounds or whatever some really interesting stuff the Norse myths all these different cultures have their 
sagas, their songs, their epics that are repeated over and over again. So that's um, that's what we're dealing with. Podcasts are just a new form of an epic, but it's much more diverse. Oh, and uh, Curry announced that he's working on a podcast 2.0 platform and technical podcast. So I'm kind of interested to find out what's going on with that. <clears throat> so uh, we'll see what's going on. Okay, so um, let's uh, listen to some more of this podcast on human rights and see what else he has to say. Now, um, I'm choosing a different road today where we have a lot more cars. Also because um, you shouldn't always go in the same way. Don't do the same thing over and over again. Always switch it up a little bit. So today I'm taking a new path on my walk. I always try and go a different way. And um, you might encounter some more vehicular noise. Sorry about that. Yeah, episode 50, I haven't even finished editing it. And I have to say, I'm not going to edit these podcasts right now. I do not have the time for it. I've got a million things going on. I can make the excuse to myself that these walks are good for me. And I am slimming down and I'm feeling great. And my whole body is in um, alignment, you could say, when I'm doing my walks. The nature is beautiful. And um, my, I guess my hunter instinct or wander instinct is being, all my different instincts are being fed uh, by this little bit of adventure. And um, so, and uh, I think um, when everything's in alignment, and your, all of your senses are satisfied, you get some harmony, an inner harmony. So, and that gives you a unity of strength, a uh, unification of all your different forces, all pulling in one direction. So that's a great thing. If you're just sitting on the computer, it's easy to get distracted, let me tell you. There's all these things flashing and beeping and booping, and your plane of, um, <clears throat> your choice of movement, your plane of movement is multidimensional. You can do anything and go anywhere, but when you're walking, you're limited. You're going straight forward. And, um, yeah, I'm going to take a break for a second. So in this next clip, we're going to talk, he's going to talk about the origin of how the Declaration of Human Rights, Article 19, the Freedom of Opinion, how this <clears throat> came to place, how it came to be, 
and um, that uh, it took place just before the Cold War really kicked off so that maybe it would be impossible to do this one today. I'd like to see the um, notes on how this thing came to be and the type of conflicts that they had because they, those might provide some more insight into things. Really why I'm looking into this field is I want to see if we can find some actual arguments from the communists against free speech. You know, we listened to that girl saying it was absolutely clear that the New York Times doesn't want to entertain any dissenting opinions and how she matter-of-factly advocated for censorship. And I want to see if we can find some communist ideology in writing, black and white, that supports that exact idea so that we can draw a conclusion or connection between our modern leftist censorship and age-old communist uh, doctrine. So that's why we're going into this topic today. I think this is going to be one of the topics of our uh, podcast, really. After the horrors of World War II, 50 countries met in San Francisco to draw up the UN Charter, which was signed on 26 June 1945. The Charter was followed up by the establishment of the 18-member UN Commission on Human Rights. Now, many critics have claimed that international human rights are a form of Western cultural imperialism. But the UN Commission on Human Rights contained broad geographical membership, and only five of the 18 countries belonged to the Western Bloc. The drafting committee's efforts to draw up a Declaration of Universal Applicability was provided intellectual ammunition by a UN-appointed committee of philosophers and thinkers from all corners of the world. The committee received over 70 contributions from Chinese, Islamic, Hindu, American, European and socialist perspectives, including from Mahatma Gandhi. Despite profound disagreements on the relationship between rights and duties, the relations between the individual and the community, the drafters of the Universal Declaration eventually found a way forward. They were pragmatists and deliberately avoided metaphysical and philosophical disputes and focused instead on writing a text with specific individual rights that everybody could agree upon. During one meeting, a visitor asked how champions of clashing ideologies could agree on a list of fundamental rights and was told, Yes, we agree about the rights, but on condition, no one asks us why. Despite this historical achievement, some of the rights enshrined in the Declaration were particularly controversial and triggered a vehement debate over scope, definition and limitations. One such right was freedom of expression. The negotiations that concluded with the adoption of the Universal Declaration in 1948 started in San Francisco in 1946. The Declaration is a non-binding catalogue containing 30 articles on civil and political as well as social and economic rights. Article 19 stipulates, Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. But getting to Article 19 was not without political frictions and profound ideological disputes. On the ashes of the Holocaust and the collapse of the Third Reich, 
the Cold War between East and West was slowly taking shape, and the tensions between the Communist East and the Capitalist West were increasing. Eleanor Roosevelt, who chaired the UN Commission on Human Rights as the first US ambassador to the UN, knew that the window of opportunity for agreement might soon be... All right, I just had the sheriff roll up on me. Um, I'm walking down here by the airport, exploring some road that I've never been to. It turns out it's a dead end. It's not marked as a dead end. And um, there's a lot of, there's an old uh, military naval uh, weapon systems uh, building here. And there's like the National Guard and there's an airport and there's all types of stuff. So I walk down to the end of the road. I'm just looking through the gate and the sheriff drives up really quick. And he asked me what if I'm part of the construction crew because the way I dress when I go for my walk, I have my orange yellow vest on for safety. And I have my headset on. I'm a big guy. So people generally think that um, I'm a construction worker or something. I guess if I had a hard hat, it would even be better. So he rolls up on me and he's like, all right. I said, I'm going for a walk. I'm just walking and I was just exploring the street and I've been here. Sorry if I caused any problems. So uh, he just drove off, but that was nice. He was very friendly, but my heart skipped a beat there when I saw this car coming straight at me. Uh, very aggressive, but uh, they are just protecting critical infrastructure. I mean, this airport is home to a lot of stuff. So uh, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting. Anyway, I'm, I'm continuing with this podcast of this guy because he's really answering my questions. And he talks about how the communists have redefined fascist to anything that's not communist. So first of all, they want to um, say that it's our duty to squash fascism's speech because, you know, after Hitler and all that, uh, we have to um, put an end to it. And I can understand that. Definitely can understand that. But when you legislate ideology and if you legislate um, you know religion in the end you're opening up hell's gate because your opposition will use it against you um, <clears throat> so even free speech if you legislate free speech then yes your opposition will use free speech against you but that's not as bad as having censorship used against you, especially with the threat of violence. I mean, just think about the apparatus that you need to impose a censorship of free speech on hundreds of millions of people. How much effort that is, actually. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm continuing with this podcast here because he's really answering the questions and you can see the parallels already to our current situation. <clears throat> and also you can see how everyone is being called a Nazi, everyone's being called a fascist. Well, that just means you're not a member of the Communist Party and we are going to censor you. Let's play this clip. 
Okay, so in this next clip, I skipped over a bunch. Eleanor Roosevelt was getting involved, and we're talking about the 1960s now, where a second round of human rights uh, text is being adopted, and this time it's going to go in favor of the communists. Let's listen. Changing from hatred to ill feeling and mere dislike. And in another memorable exchange, Roosevelt argued that hate speech restrictions would only encourage governments to punish all criticisms in the name of protection against religious or national hostility. The Commission must be careful not to include in the draft covenant any provision likely to be exploited by totalitarian states for the purpose of rendering the other articles null and void. For all her eloquence, several countries criticized Roosevelt's absolutist position, including countries such as Egypt, Poland and Ukraine. Whereas France emphasized the middle course between the two extremes of authoritarianism and unlimited freedom. And in 1953, a representative of the World Jewish Congress was invited to speak at the UN Commission on Human Rights. Perhaps understandably, given the Holocaust, the representative supported the French and Soviet argument that hate speech provisions were necessary in the name of human rights. He emphasized the causal link between verbal propaganda, demonization of certain groups, and genocide. However, not everybody agreed. The Swedish delegate replied that such free speech prohibitions would not have prevented the fanatical persecutions under World War II. Instead, he argued that the effective prophylaxis lay in free discussion, information, and education. Australia warned that people could not be legislated into morality and that the remedy might be worse than the evil it sought to remove. The UK representative stated that the power of democracy to combat propaganda lay in the ability of its citizens to arrive at recent decisions in the face of conflicting appeals. When challenged by the Soviet delegate, the UK representative pointed out that during World War II, Hitler's Mein Kampf had not been banned in Britain and that its government would maintain and fight for its conception of liberty as resolutely as it had fought against Hitler. But this time around, principled warnings did not carry the day. In 1961, 16 countries from Latin America, Africa, the Middle East and Eastern Europe proposed a text which was adopted into the final version and became Article 20, Paragraph 2. When put to a vote in the General Assembly, it was adopted with 52 votes in favor, 19 against, and 12 abstentions. Those in favor were primarily the communist states of Eastern Europe, as well as non-Western countries. The 19 countries that voted against included almost all Western liberal democracies. When the Soviet Union had lost the debate in 1948, there were 58 member states of the UN. In 1961, membership had swollen to 104. This included a number of African states who, under colonial rule, had all experienced systematic, humiliating and oppressive European racism and therefore felt sympathetic towards prohibiting racist hate speech. Though, as we saw in episode 35, European colonial powers such as Britain and France actually used censorship of colonized peoples as a racist tactic to quell anti-colonial movements. But of course, using one's own recent oppression as an argument against the Soviet agenda might have been a rather uncomfortable strategy for Western state. But ultimately, the Western democracies had been dissuaded by the inherent vagueness of the provision of Article 20. When does a book, a cartoon, an article or an argument constitute incitement to national, racial or religious hostility? 
And what does hostility even mean? As a Norwegian diplomat concluded, the article would be so easily misconstrued that it might well be used to victimize those whom it was intended to protect. As we shall see, the concerns of both Eleanor Roosevelt and the Norwegian diplomat turned out to be prophetic, because the adoption of Article 20, Paragraph 2, would come in handy as communist states used the nebulous concept of incitement to punish hundreds of dissidents' human rights. So, let me do a little bit of meta-analysis here of what's going on, at least right now. Maybe meta-analysis is a stupid word. Let's just tell me what's, what I'm thinking. So, I'm working on editing my podcast while I'm walking. I've gotten it down to basically one-handed operation of the podcast. So I'm using this audio cutter mp3 player to play the clips and then I'm using um, the anchor.fm app to record right now. Now after I clip and then share that clip with the anchor it'll upload it <clears throat> and then I record the intro to that clip and then I have to wait for that intro to be uploaded and then I can add in the um, the clipped data so to be very effective I would need a tool that would allow me to upload the intro and the clip at the same time so that I don't have to wait so that would be an extra added on bonus. So maybe if I just added in like, basically I'd like to have a tool that would allow me to listen to multiple podcasts, select clips from them and then insert them into my podcast while recording clips and maintaining some order all in one app. That would be great. That would uh, eliminate at least a minute or so pause between clips anyway I think that this is a great way to do it and also the quality of the podcast should be higher now because well first of all we have clips and having clips is like having a guest on your show where you're having another idea to bounce off of even if they can't respond um, <clears throat> it's still going to give us some more uh, content some more ideas and um, also the quality of the audio should be better than having someone on the phone uh, recording and if someone wants to send me a clip during the show I can insert it so they can record it directly on their um, end at higher quality and then just upload that file to me um, <clears throat> so I think that there's a couple of different, uh, options here, and, um, I'm starting to like this new form, at least this more, provides more interesting content than me just talking for hours. Now, one thing I just wanted to note, an observation, you know, I'm looking at this editor, and it's amazing how little information um, you can send in one second 
Now a modem, um, the old modems were setting at 300 bits per second, and they got up to like 32,000 bits per second. ISDN was 64,000 bytes per second, or bits per second. And we're up to one megabyte, or 30 megabytes a second, upload, download on the fiber. So you can think in one second, you can say like one word. Um, <clears throat> and this podcast is very slow in terms of information rate. And you can download, you know, 30 megabytes in a second now on your uh, fiber network. So it's just amazing the difference in speed and how slow the brain actually is. The audio system is very slow. The brain is slow and we're even slower to adopt new ideas. Just think about the amount of work and time it would take to even change one idea and to rework its implications in your behavior, in your life. And uh, the amount of effort that would actually have to go into that. And I guess as we get older, we get lazier and we get less likely to change and more set in our ways. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. They say, you can't keep teaching old pig new tricks, it just annoys the pig. So, anyway, um, <clears throat> I'm back on the uh, canal path here, that's why you hear the crunching sound of my feet. The sun is now up, well, the sky is now brighter, it's 6.12 in the morning, and... Um, we are deep into this podcast. So, um, I got some more clips for you on the international human rights. We're going to talk next about this Helsinki declaration um, for the uh, conference or the organization for cooperation in Europe. That's coming up next. All right. So I'm listening again to that clip for the Helsinki, and they're basically, they're talking about um, convincing Russia to uh, grant human rights, and they did do that, uh, <clears throat> but they didn't tell their people about it, and they weren't actually planning on um, implementing them. But uh, here's the interesting thing. So, for me at least, from my perspective. So we're talking about the um, access to information to the citizen, by the citizens, to um, listen to competing or contrarian viewpoints. And they're also talking about, you know, censorship and removal of fake news. And this is what we're getting into today with the whole um, Facebook censorship and Google censorship, removing people for fake news and for other things that they don't like to hear. So we're actually seeing the leftist, um, the communist uh, agenda being implemented by the big media, the advertisers. So there's something right there we can um, point to. 
and say it's happening here, um, coming from our Silicon Valley. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, we have to also understand the perspective that when we talk to people, that they're also coming from a viewpoint and they might not have access to all information. They might not be listening to Radio Free Europe, like in metaphor, right? So that people are have the freedom now to publish what they want and they have the freedom to listen to what they want and they're going to land in a bubble and these bubbles are just as repressive internally even though they're not legislated they are through active freedom or economic force or social pressure but we can see this team mentality and this um, bubble mentality as creating little um, communist dictatorships so to say repressive organizations inside of bubbles where people are not getting all the information. They're not getting alternative viewpoints. So that's just my observation here, that we have to also be aware that not everyone is consuming a diet of balanced information, like we're promoting on this podcast, this random cast, where we listen to random things and we um, have a balanced diet of right and left and up and down, east, north and south, at least we try to, and we're not uh, tied up too much in any one ideology, well, at least I'm stating some of my um, beliefs or viewpoints or theories up front. Like the idea of the memes and so forth. I mean, we could also question that in general. I'm not saying it's an absolute truth. The idea of the meme is a meme. All right. So <clears throat> let's uh, continue with this clip. I just wanted to throw that in. Technology penetrating borders. But the real game changer, at least in Cold War Europe, was the Helsinki Final Act of 1975, signed by 35 countries under the auspices of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe after almost three years of negotiations. The overall ambition on both sides was to formalize detente and ease tensions between the US and the Soviet Union. But the Eastern and Western blocs also sat down at the negotiating table with different agendas. On June 8, 1973, the participants agreed on a number of basic principles to be negotiated. The Soviet bloc secured principles like the inviolability of frontiers and non-intervention in internal affairs, while the West insisted on Principle 7 on the respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, including specifically the freedom of thought, conscience, religion and belief. The so-called Third Basket got even more specific. It called for improvement of the circulation of access to and exchange of information, which included both newspapers, magazines, books, radio, TV, as well as better working relations for foreign journalists. Initially, it had been the Western European democracies that drove this agenda, while National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger advised Presidents Nixon and Ford to focus on real politique rather than useless human rights sloganeering. 
but a wide range of factors changed American attitudes towards a more assertive role in driving the human rights agenda. This included a speech by the world-famous Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn just before the Helsinki summit in 1975. Solzhenitsyn had been deported and stripped of his citizenship in 1974 for his famous book Gulag, the Archipelago, on the Soviet prison camp system. In Gulag, Solzhenitsyn wrote about Article 58 in the Soviet Penal Code that criminalized anti-Soviet propaganda and agitation. Who among us has not experienced its all-encompassing embrace? In all truth, there is no step, thought, action or lack of action under the heavens which could not be punished by the heavy hand of Article 58. And Solzhenitsyn wrote from experience as he had spent eight years in the gulags after the authorities discovered private writings that were critical of Stalin. Now, Solzhenitsyn warned that unless the U.S. stepped up its game, the Helsinki principle of non-interference would result in the funeral of Eastern Europe. He implored the U.S. to push for implementation of the human rights principles and to interfere more and more, interfere as much as you can. We beg you to come and interfere. The rights and freedoms built out in the Third Basket and Principle 7 obviously did not appeal to the communist states. They were already fighting an uphill battle to jam the radio signals of Western radio stations like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty and BBC that broadcast uncensored news and writings of dissidents into the homes of around a third of the population in the USSR and half the population in the other countries behind the Iron Curtain. During early negotiations, the Soviet Minister of Foreign Affairs, Andrei Gromyko, warned the West that he strongly opposed any attempts by the capitalist countries to impose on us the freedom of spreading hostile propaganda and ideology. The Soviet ambassador in Helsinki emphasized that the Soviet Union would under no circumstances tolerate the dissemination of anti-culture, pornography, racism, fascism, the cult of violence, hostility among peoples, and false slanderous propaganda. It's quite ironic how similar these concerns about hostile propaganda and racism sound to modern European democracies complaining about interference and the weaponization of the internet by authoritarian states like Russia in the digital era. And telling how the Soviets, just as during the negotiations in the UN, used the need to fight racism and fascism as justifying censorship. But by the end of the day, the Soviet bloc swallowed the concessions to human rights and signed the agreement. The prevailing view in Moscow was that the human rights language was little more than empty rhetoric that could be satisfied with mere lip service. Gromyko reassured the worried hardliners in the Politburo by pointing to the document's commitment to the principle of sovereignty and non-intervention. As he proclaimed, we are masters in our own house. And initially, it was the broad international consensus that the Soviet bloc had once again outsmarted the West. A New York Times editorial lamented, Nothing signed in Helsinki will in any way save courageous free thinkers in the Soviet Empire from the prospect of incarceration in forced labor camps or in insane asylums or from being subjected to involuntary exile. The Soviet dissident Vladimir Bukovsky agreed. In disgust, he wrote that the West's friendly relation with the Soviet Union was built on our bones. Newspapers like Pravda, on the other hand, had wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the Helsinki Final Act and portrayed it as a huge victory for Brezhnev and the USSR. 
though the parts about human rights made the communist regime somewhat hesitant about sharing the actual content of the act with their citizens. But through word-of-mouth underground Samizdat publishers and Western radio broadcasts, the Eastern Europeans quickly learned about the Helsinki Agreement and the new rights which their governments had just solemnly promised to respect. Despite the government's cautiousness, the Helsinki Act was published in Czechoslovak newspapers, and some Czechs cut the text out and hung it on their refrigerators or elsewhere in 1976. Dissident groups throughout the Soviet bloc were emboldened to act as if their governments had actually committed themselves to basic human rights in good faith, rather than as a calculated gesture to obtain more. All right, now we're going to get into some real meat here. So this guy, Sukharov, is awarded the um, Nobel Peace Prize, and then he is not allowed to go there to accept it, and he's censored or terrorized for not refusing this prize from the West. And now I'm going to get into the freedom of use uh, clauses from the Free Software Foundation, which is also, I think, being hypocritical. And I've talked about this previously, but basically, <clears throat> basic, good morning, basically, um, the Free Software Foundation says that you should be able to use the software for any purpose. And then they put in usage restrictions, right? And people are using the GPL to actually restrict usage. For example, claiming network, like MySQL is claiming some kind of network layer linking, which is crazy. But um, more importantly, the GCC plugin architecture requires that you declare that your license, it queries the license of the plugin, and it requires that the plugin declares itself as a GPL license, which is also insane. And I think that that is the hypocrisy of the Free Software Foundation, in essence, as described here um, uh, by uh, Sukharov, and that we can see repressive behavior coming from the Free Software Foundation, uh, coming from Stallman, who has modeled himself after Marx, I think, with a GNU manifesto and um, very left-oriented, very uh, communist-oriented uh, style propaganda. And um, I think, you know, even though his ideas sound good on the surface um, the actual agenda that he's following is not honest so I think that uh, we can call him a hypocrite for restricting usage right uh, when saying that all usage should not be restricted and that we can see some parallels here and this is someone who I very respect in the, in the past, Stallman, you know, for the Free Software Foundation movement, which I think is a great thing. But in the end, I have rejected him as a hypocrite. And um, I think we have to emancipate ourselves from believing stupidly just what people say, and also we have to look at what they do. 
Um, and I think that many people uh, should also take a look at these things for their own purposes and their own contexts and say, who is restricting whose free speech, right? And even someone at work, my boss was kept on pressuring me to be Facebook friends, or kept on mentioning it, or if I posted something on Twitter, he kept on mentioning my Twitter posts. And I find that also a uh, restriction of free speech in a very subtle way. But um, I think that there's a lot of different types of pressure being exerted on people. And we should look at that um, from the perspective of universal human rights and freedom. You know, and if a company is, if a company is, um, well, I, if a company is pressuring you, I mean, you can leave maybe with just cause, but it's also going to be very difficult to do that. Um, so... In any case, I would, uh, I would, um, I would just say that uh, we should just first develop an awareness of these things. But I really want to call out the uh, Stallman, Richard Stallman, and the Free Software Foundation for advocating censorship of me and my ideas. Um, and I've had a long-standing battle with him over my introspective, introspective project. He, want, he wanted me to delete it. And he has pressured other people as well. Um, and restricted their free speech in, for the greater communist good. So there you go. Who accepted and subjected him to a relentless campaign of smears and surveillance when he refused to refuse this Western honor. As early as the 1960s, Sakharov had become increasingly critical of the oppressive nature of the Soviet Union, and in 1968 he wrote the essay Progress, Peaceful Coexistence and Intellectual Freedom, which claimed that Intellectual freedom is essential to human society. Freedom to obtain and distribute information, freedom for open-minded and unfearing debate, and freedom from pressure by officialdom and prejudices. Such a trinity of freedom of thought is the only guarantee against an infection of people by mass myths which in the hands of treacherous hypocrites and demagogues can be transformed into bloody dictatorship. Sakharov's eloquent essay In this next clip, we're going to hear about the Moscow Helsinki group where um, a group of friends got together and held a press conference that they would be monitoring the USSR's implementation of its agreement in the Helsinki um, agreement. So it's, they would be monitoring the Helsinki agreement in Russia and reporting on it. And then a um, congresswoman from New Jersey uh, <clears throat> went ahead and created in Congress a group to monitor and report on European cooperation. So all of a sudden, there was an insider in Russia 
reporting to the Americans on the human rights violations. <clears throat> so that's very interesting. And, you know, I think that we could probably go and find some examples of more violations from the Free Software Foundation um, and ask people to report on them. It might be an interesting project. If, uh, if they were doing that to me, maybe they'd do that to other people. And we could uh, group together and create the uh, Free Software Foundation Helsinki group. Even though their power is waning um, and open source, less restrictive software is definitely, uh, or less restrictive licenses. And it's not really about the licenses, it's about the people. Uh, <clears throat> less authoritarian people are in play at this point. But when we look at Wikipedia, it's very authoritarian again. So I think that there's definitely definitely some room for creating a watchdog for authoritarianism in open source. And we should really, um, we should really talk about that. Given the negative attention surrounding Sakharov, it was a pretty bold move when in May 1976, a group of Russian dissidents, including Nathan Sharansky and Yuri Olov, held a press conference in Sakharov's apartment. Here, they announced the establishment of the Moscow Helsinki Group in order to monitor the implementation of the Helsinki Agreement in the USSR. In the following years, the Moscow Helsinki Group and others like it reported human rights violations to Western journalists or circulated them within the Soviet Union through underground networks of so-called Samizdat. Western NGOs and politicians provided much-needed backing to these groups of dissidents who had no official or public channels of communications. The Republican Congresswoman Millicent Fenwick of New Jersey played an especially crucial role. When she visited the Soviet Union a few weeks after the Helsinki summit, she met a number of so-called refuseniks, Soviets, often Jews, who were refused immigration visas, which deeply moved her. In meetings with Brezhnev, she pressed him on human rights, and he described her as obsessive. Against the opposition of President Ford, Fenwick convinced Congress to establish the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe, consisting of members of both houses of Congress, with a mandate to investigate and report on Soviet and Eastern European compliance with the final act. Suddenly, dissidents and human rights activists had powerful friends on Capitol Hill. Western NGOs also saw an opportunity to... So I'm thinking I need to set up my own domain for hosting this podcast. And then um, <clears throat> when I post to uh, Anchor, it should do some kind of webhook and then <clears throat> update the uh, page as we go. Copy also the clips and everything to um, archive.org and organize them. And I think the individual clips are available on the um, some S3 bucket of Anchor. So it should also pull those in as we can. So that uh, 
we have some better uh, interface. It would be great to have some kind of um, way to control it using voice commands or simple swipe commands. So yeah, I think, I hate to say this, but I really think I need to revisit my idea of the podcasting app itself. Instead of redoing what the stream, what the anchor does, I want to just augment it until I can replace it. So we'll see what we can do. Yeah, it's time for a break here on my walk. It's uh, 7.11 in the morning, so now we've been up for three some hours. And um, we got a slow start. But uh, yeah, I think it's time for a little bio break and a little uh, relax my feet for a minute. I'm almost at the Washington Crossing. Um, the Washington Crossing uh, Historical Park, which is quite nice. And looks like there's a Dunkin' Donuts there. I will accept the Google Pay, because I don't like carrying cash on my walks, even though I should. Anyway, um, yeah, I think I think it's time for an augmented app of some kind. And also, um, you know, we can create binaries for Android using um, LLVM, using uh, Termux, using GCC. So why can't we create simple programs that uh, accept some kind of voice input on the Android. Why does everything have to be in stupid uh, in stupid uh, Java? Let's look into that some more. All right. Okay, now we're going to fast forward to 1977. I'm skipping over a lot of material here because I'm not going to play the whole podcast. I encourage you to listen to the podcast. The link is in the um, show notes, and we're not going to. We're just playing some sailing clips so you can get a better understanding of it. Um, but this was a great clip, where in 1977 the Helsinki Charter groups are cracked down upon by the KGB, and they use the uh, terms of incitement of hatred or incitement of some of uh, you know anti uh, social behavior to uh, limit free speech just as discussed in the earlier part of this show good fight in late 1981 the deputy chairman of the KGB thought that things were under control as a result of measures taken by the KGB, implemented in strict accordance with the law and under the leadership of the party organs, the antisocial elements, despite the West's considerable material and moral support, did not succeed in achieving organized cohesion on the platform of anti-Sovietism. In Czechoslovakia, several members of Charter 77 were arrested throughout 1977, and the majority of Czechoslovakian cases taken up by Amnesty International in 1978 concerned members or affiliates of the Charter Group, who were imprisoned for writing, distributing, or possessing texts which criticized the government's abuse of human rights. Most were sentenced under three articles from the Penal Code, criminalizing subversion, breach of public peace, and, yes, you guessed it, 
incitement. The very crime which the Soviet bloc, including Czechoslovakia, had fought successfully to include in Article 20 ICCPR, and which Eleanor Roosevelt had warned could be abused to render all rights null and void unless it limited to incitement to violence. True, the Czechoslovakian Penal Code prohibited incitement against the socialist social and state system of the Republic, motivated by hostility to these bodies, rather than against specific groups. But this 